Good morning. Uh, welcome to Ambassador Church. Uh, we're excited that you can join us this morning. I know that um, for many of us uh, who are online, uh, this has now become sort of a, a regular uh, habit. And, and I know many of you are also longing uh, to be back. And so uh, one of the challenges of us is, is trying to balance both, uh, of having a worship service so that those of uh, us who want to uh, be in a, a safe environment at home, uh, can also worship, as well as those who at, at some point want to come. And so in the next few weeks, uh, we're trying to adjust our, our schedule, trying to figure out what's the safest and what's the wisest way for us to proceed. And we want to keep you informed in that process. And so I want to thank you for your prayers. I want to thank you for being a part of this church. This is not an easy time uh, to worship. Uh, there's statistics showing that there are a lot of people that are discouraged uh, in the Christian faith. And so one of the things I was always reminded of is this. If, if God took everything away from us, what's left? And hopefully what's left is Jesus. And what's left is our worshiping of God. And that's the thing that we're not let, letting go of. And so whatever we're clinging to, maybe God is taking away all our sense of security so that we can rely upon what is truly most important in our lives. And that's the message that we want to share with you, the message of the gospel. So let's pray uh, together. And I'm going to walk us through uh, this passage of Scripture found in Matthew chapter 18. Heavenly Father, thank you again uh, for allowing us to share in this time. I know week by week we're getting tired and weary and at times discouraged at what is happening around us. And especially here in California, as many of us are, are sort of going through the second phase of uh, locking down and shutting down that I know... Uh, many of us are wondering what's next. And Lord, um, as you remind us, everything in this world will crumble. Everything in this world is temporal. The only thing that lasts is you in our relationship with you. So I pray, Lord, that we would cling to the solid rock, that we would stand upon the rock of our foundation and not lose heart. And no matter how discouraging life can be, that you would remind us of your goodness and your faithfulness to us. And I pray, Lord, that you would walk us through this passage of Scripture now to help us understand how are we to live our Christian life, especially in the midst of when people offend us or people hurt us or people sin against us. How are we as gospel people, good news people, to live our lives in a way that is different than the world around us? And that's different because of what you've done for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our passage this morning is uh, found in Matthew chapter 18, and this is a familiar story that many of you have probably have heard as a story in which uh, Peter comes to Jesus and asks the question, and think about this question that Peter is asking. It's a significant question, isn't it? Because it's a question that many of us wa uh, want to ask. Oftentimes what we don't want is the answer that Jesus gives, but it's a question that all of us have, and this question is this, how many times should I forgive somebody who sinned against me. Now, I think the natural response for many of us is, is Jesus, maybe if he said once, twice, maybe five times, we're okay with that. But in this particular response, Jesus gives something totally different. Because human nature is such that when somebody does wrong to us, our first reaction is not to forgive, but instead to sort of forge ahead and to do something to them. Now, think about this for a moment. Has somebody done something to you that you haven't been able to let go of? 
Maybe a, a, a coworker has, has cheated you. Maybe a, 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 a neighbor has done something to you. Maybe a, a, a child or maybe even your spouse. And there's something that you're holding against. Or maybe it's just driving on the freeway and somebody cuts you off. Or maybe you're standing in front of a bank line in this COVID uh, this social distancing and somebody interrupts and bumps into you. Whatever the scenario is, I think all of us have this idea of, of, of being hurt and being sinned against. What's your response? And I think for us, uh, many of us, our, our, our typical response, the first response is to think about all the bad things we can do to that person. Because human nature is one in which we want to get back at the person that has offended us. We want to seek revenge. And there is a saying, isn't there, that says revenge is sweet? And and studies have shown that actually there is a sweetness to revenge. Uh, David uh, Chester of uh, Virginia Commonwealth University uh, and the University of Kentucky started studying revenge, and they discovered that the person who's insulted or socially rejected feels emotional pain. And the area in the brain associated with pain was most active in participants who went on to react with aggressive response after feeling rejected. Chester said it's tapping into the ancient tendency to respond to threats and harm in aggressive retaliation. One of the things that they said in the study that was fascinating was this, that when somebody does wrong to you and you think about all those evil things you could do back to them, there's a sense of pleasure that takes place. In in, in other words, our brain sort of releases uh, these uh, dopamine uh, uh, sort of uh, reaction that, that when somebody does us wrong, our natural response is wanting to get back at them. So initially, there is a sweetness to revenge. How many of you have thought of different ways to get back at the person that has hurt you, that has sinned against you? And like I said, human nature is that we want to get back at people that have done us wrong. But really... Does that solve the issue? You know, many of us have heard the saying, an eye for an eye. Don't get mad, get even. And especially living in this unjust world, that's our natural tendency, isn't it? To get back at people. Or to get back at at groups of individuals. Maybe even from a political party. We think about politics. And and sort of the, the danger of politics is that the other People become our enemy, and we want to get back at them for what they did to us. Have you been wrong? Have you been treated unfairly? And the question for us as Christians is, how do we deal with people that have wronged us? I know some of you have been generous by giving money to your friends or family members, and they've taken advantage of that and and maybe run off with that. Or maybe you've been involved in a relationship where the other person has, has cheated on you. Or maybe you've invested in something and that coworker or partner has taken advantage of that. Not only do we have vengeance, we have three typical responses when somebody does us wrong. Number one, we get angry. In other words, uh, the first thing that happens is that, 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 that anger starts to fuel up. And our first response is that as our blood pressure goes up, we want to just scream and do something to them. But the second response is interesting, that not only do we go from anger, we also go to bitterness. And bitterness is where we just feel that resentment building up. Maybe this is something that happened to you five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. 
When we do pastoral counseling, one of the things that often happens is that when we are counseling people, they often bring up things that happened when they were little kids. Bitterness becomes the seed that gets planted in our hearts that builds resentment and anger and hostility and that affects every relationship down the line. But the third response, I think, is where many of us fall is we want to get even. And so we think of doing harm, not maybe physically, but mentally. We think about how can we harm that person? And oftentimes that's the worst form of vengeance, isn't it? When you are so put in a place that it changes and transforms who you are, makes you somebody who you don't want to be. Uh, many years ago, there was a story. title of the story was, was fascinating. It talked about a man who one day wanted to do something. He was married to this woman, and he felt slighted by her. This gentleman's name was Ronald uh, Schanenberger, and his wife's name was Amy. Amy uh, had refused to cut a vacation short when his father passed away. And so in his mind, he devised a plan that was so horrendous and hideous that, that normal people would not even think of even uh, thinking up something like this. What he f uh, planned to do was to father a baby with his wife, and when the baby was born, that he would kill that baby. And this happened in 1999. When this man began to confess to what had happened, he began to talk about the resentment and bitterness that was planted in this one incident that happened because he couldn't cut his vacation short or his wife wouldn't let him. And that happens to a lot of us, doesn't it? That there's so much pain and anger and hurt that, that we want to lash out. And, and, and especially in this time, in COVID-19, this is something that is happening a lot. Isn't it? Because we are sort of isolated and locked in, so our mind begins to play sort of this replay. So all the things that, that have pained us, uh, caused us bitterness and hurt. And so the question for us is, how do we let go of that? And I think that's one of the things that, that, that the gospel, that the kingdom culture changes and transforms. Because Jesus is making a point that I think all of us universally can relate with. And the question is, is this, how can we deal with somebody who has hurt us? So in chapter 18, Jesus continues this story. And he begins to talk about... Um, to his disciples as he's continuing on. And, and as you remember, uh, last week we talked about this glory of God, the transfiguration, uh, how Jesus gave his disciple a glimpse of the future of what a transformed person would look like. In chapter 18, he begins to sort of apply that now. And one of the true characteristics of, of kingdom people, one of the true characteristics of a Christian is this. They are willing to forgive those who have hurt them. And that's one of the hardest things. So in these uh, stories, uh, Jesus begins to recount to them a, uh, a story about somebody who sins against you. So actually, let, let's look at chapter 18, verse 15. He says this, If a brother sins against you, he says, go and show them his fault, just between the uh, two of you. If he listens to you, you have run, won your brother over. If you will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony 
of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, treat them as you would a pagan and tax collector. In this particular scenario, we see sort of a process of dealing with somebody who's wronged us. Now, the, the reality is we do the opposite. When somebody hurts us, who do we tell? We tell everybody except that person that has hurt us. In reality, the Christian response to sin, personal sin, is that we confront that individual. And if he doesn't listen or she doesn't listen, then you bring somebody else with you. It's only the last resort is when you then bring it to the church. Well, we know the story that is one of the most important, I think, stories for us to think about when somebody's wronged us. When somebody's paying us, what do we do? How do we confront them? Well, I just want to encourage you that there are three things that I want to look at in this passage. And I think they're important uh, to kind of talk about. Number one is this. If you want to be a forgiving person, then you need to understand that you yourself need forgiveness. You know, in this particular story, actually in, in verse 12 through 14, Jesus tells a parable. And this parable actually gets more expounded in the, in the Gospel of Luke. It's one of the most uh, well-known parables where Jesus talks about a lost sheep. And notice what he says here in verse 12. See that you do not look down on one of these little ones, for I tell you that the angels in heaven will see the face of my Father in heaven. And then Jesus says, what do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, he will not leave the 99 to the hills and go look for the one who's wandered off. And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he is happier about the one sheep than about the 99 did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of the little ones should be lost. In this context of forgiveness... Jesus' story, his main point is this, that God desires us to be forgiven. He goes after those who have sinned and those who have wandered off. And his desire is for, to find the one, that sheep that has been lost. And I think to truly forgive, we need to recognize that we need to be the recipients of God's forgiveness. God's pursuing us. God's pursuing us. He wants to forgive us. And notice the beauty of the story because it's, it's an analogy of what Jesus ultimately does on the cross. That he goes out of his way to rescue those that have fallen away. And I think that's really for us to understand true forgiveness. We have to understand that we are forgiven people. You know, it's easy for, for us when we think about sin is that, that the, one of the coping mechanisms of sin is, number one, we def, redefine sin. We don't use the word sin anymore. We just sort of, sort of redefine it into something less uh, a judgmental. And, and so we sort of redefine sin as, as, as just as a mistake, as an accident. Or maybe some of us, uh, we define sin, kind of, uh, we ignore it. Or the third way is we try to appease it. We try to just forget about it and kind of do something else. But when the Bible talks about sin, it talks about sin in relationship to God. It's not just action. It's not just thinking. It's a, a direct offense with God. We have offended his character and his nature. And that's why we need to be forgiven. Because if we don't understand that, then we really don't have a reason to be forgiven. It's not an offense against somebody else. It's an offense against the holy God. And that's where the basis of forgiveness lies. 
See, all of us have offended God. And that's what Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, right? For all have sinned and fall short to the glory of God. What does the idea of glory of God mean? And last week we talked about God's presence. That when we sin, we offend God's goodness and God's character and God's nature. And when Jesus died, he covered up that. So that, that, that his, uh, in some sense, his punishment was the source of our redemption. And that's where the source of our forgiveness lies. One of the things about sin is this, that the reason that Jesus had to die for our sins is because sin in itself separates us from God, but also causes us eternal harm. It enslaves us. Sin is not just an action. And this is where I think a lot of Christians sort of mistake sin to be, is this one-time act. Sin is our nature. That we are sinners at birth because we have been born into this enslaved state. All of us have this sinful nature. And unless we recognize that and recognize that God has pursued us to redeem us, we will never be able to be forgiving people. Here's the key. To truly be a forgiving person, you have to understand the depth of your own forgiveness. And the only way we understand that is to understand the mercy and the goodness of God. See, isn't it easy for us to cast stones on other people? Have you ever sat down and, and, and watched a, a TV show? Maybe it's a reality show. Maybe it's a documentary. Whatever. And you criticize the people on television. It's so easy because you are seeing not your action, but you are seeing their action. And you will say, I'll never do what they do. But in reality, if, if, if the cameras were on us, Somebody would be probably pointing the finger at us. I would never do what they do because it's easy for us to point the finger at someone else. In John chapter 8, Jesus tells a story. Actually, John tells a story of Jesus. He went to the Mount of Olives, and at dawn he appeared in the temple courts, and all the people gathered, it says in verse 2, and he sat down to teach them. And the teacher of the law and Pharisees brought a woman into adultery, and they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, it commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? Here's the dilemma. This woman was caught in the act of adultery. The, 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 the law says that she demands, she deserves death. And so, what's the point? Well, it's interesting the way Jesus responds in verse 6. It says that they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing. You see, I, I think in some sense this woman may have been framed as well. They're using this woman and her sin as a way of trapping Jesus. But I love the next response in verse 6. But, the, but Jesus bent down and began to start to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up. And then he says this. If any of you is without sin... Let him throw the first stone at her. Again, he stopped down and, and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard him began to go away one at a time. Notice this. The older ones first until only Jesus was the only one left. And, the, and Jesus straightened up and said, Woman, who are, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And Jesus' response is powerful. He goes, she says, No one, sir. Neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus, 
Sometimes we think about God as one who wants to uh, sort of instill justice and, and, and judgment upon us. And we see this God as a God who is vengeful. But we also see here in this passage that Jesus was more merciful. It's not that he didn't want, he, he, he allowed her to sin. But it was that he acknowledged her sinfulness. And he said, go and sin no more. I think one of the most beautiful things about the story. And, and again, commentators debate, what did Jesus write on the ground? Some people debate whether Jesus wrote down everybody's sin. But I think the question itself challenged them. Because unless we look first deep inside our own state, we will always be judgmental people. You know, one of the things that the gospel does is it changes our judgment into forgiveness. And if you are the person that has sort of an a inclination to, to judge others, then the first thing that I want to challenge you is to look deep within. Is your heart willing to be merciful and to forgive? Or is your heart rushing to judgment? It's easy to rush to judgment, isn't it? We look at a person's skin color. We look at a person's occupation. We look at a person's skill set. And we automatically assume that person is such that because of what they have or what they do or what they look like. But the reality is this, that all of us are in the same state. All of us deserves judgment. All of us are sinners. All of us need to be pursued by God. But here's the second point that I think is important. This is where the story continues. To truly forgive, we need to understand the depths of our debts. <laughs> to truly be forgiven, we have to understand the depth of our debt. In other words, Jesus is continuing on, and he says this. Then, G then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, how many times should I forgive when somebody sins against me? Up to seven times? And Jesus says, no, I tell you, 70 times seven. Now, in, in the Greek, it's actually kind of written a little bit differently than the way we would end. He's not just calculating 70 times seven, 490 times. It's actually, in, in, in some translations, it's just 70 times, period. In other words, it's really just saying it's an infinite amount of time. Even if it's 70 times seven, we're not going to count 490 times that we're going to forgive this person and then we could get vengeance on that. That's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is look at your own sinfulness. Because if you cannot begin with your own eyes inwardly directed to your own hearts, then you are always going to be at fault of misjudging people. And in this story which is fascinating, Jesus uh, tells a story about, he tells a parable. The kingdom of heaven is like this, he says in verse 25. Uh, five. A king who wanted to settle an account with the servants, he began the settlement. A man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And since he was not able to pay, that's thousands, of, maybe even a million dollars. The master ordered he and his wife to be locked up. Now the story, of course, is that this man who had sort of uh, violated uh, the king's trust, had taken all this money and embezzled the king. The king could have easily put him to death, but he puts him in prison so that he can repay. Well, the guy starts to beg and says, please, please let me go. And so the king lets him go. And as soon as he goes out to the street, he sees somebody else that owes him money, but instead of owing him millions of dollars, he owes him a few dollars. And what does he do? Instead of enacting mercy... He enacts judgment. 
The point of the story that Jesus is making is this is like so many of us. And I think he was pointing the finger in some ways to the Pharisees. That's what they were doing. The Pharisees are the ones that were looking at other people and, and they felt wrong by these people. And so what they did was they brought judgment and when they didn't realize the depths of their own debts. You know, I think the number one thing for repentance is to first acknowledge our own sinfulness before God. The idea of repentance in, in, the, in the Old Testament, the Bible, you see, is a person who literally turns around to recognize that they are the ones who offended God. See, if we don't understand the depths of our own sinfulness, what ends up happening is that our sins become minimized and everybody else's sins become maximized. Because there's no fair comparison. Because what somebody does wrong is always worse than the way you've wronged other people. In reality, to understand the depths of our own sinfulness creates people who are merciful. Because without mercy, we're not demonstrating the character of God. Leo Tolstoy, uh, the Russian novelist, talked about the nature of true forgiveness in this story. There was an honest, hardworking uh, Russian peasant named Askinov, and he left his family for a few, a few days to go to a nearby fair. He spent his first uh, night at an inn, which way, uh, a murder was committed in that inn. And the murderer placed the murder weapon in, his, uh, pe in this peasant's bag. When the police did the investigation, they found the murder weapon in this peasant's bag, and he was stuck in prison for a murder he did not commit for 26 years, surviving only on the bitter hopes of revenge. One day, ironically, um, the real murderer was imprisoned with him and soon was charged with an escaped attempt. He had tried to be, dig, dig a tunnel, and Askinov was the alone uh, who had witnessed this. When the authorities uh, interrogated the peasant about this person's crime, he had his opportunity. What does he do? Does he put this guy who put him in prison uh, and, and, and put him to death? Or what does he do? So he, uh, during this time, during the 26 years, God had been working in Ashkenaz's heart. And instead of jumping at the chance, the grace of God suddenly wells up in this peasant's heart. And instead of finding the darkness that he fled, instead his heart is filled with light. He finds himself saying to the officer, I saw nothing. And that night, the guilty criminal makes his way to the peasant's bunk and sobbing on his knees and begins to ask forgiveness. Again, the light of Christ floods this peasant's heart. He says, God will forgive you. Maybe I'm a hundred times worse than you. And at these words, his heart grew light and his longing for his earthly home left him. I thought, what a powerful reminder that when we are sinned against, that rather than trying to retaliate and to get back at the person, that we first and foremost acknowledge our own anger, our own hostility, our own frustration. And if we begin with that posture, I think that's where Christ becomes magnified and the light of Christ shines in us and through us to the world around us. But some of you are still not satisfied. 
you're probably saying to yourself, but, but that person still did wrong. What do I do? Do I get back, at, get, get back at them? Do I pray for their demise? What is my response? Because in our hearts, we want a sense of justice, don't we? We want somebody who's wronged us to be wronged. And this is the last point that is important. To truly forgive, we need to leave it in God's hands. To truly forgive, we need to leave it in God's hands. This is where we have a higher authority. That we are not the ultimate authority of people who sinned against us. That we who have been created in the image of God, that God cares for his image, cares for us more than we could even care for ourselves. God is the one who would enact vengeance. It says in Romans chapter 12, verses 17 to 21, Do not repay anyone for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it possible, as far as it depends on, on you, live at peace with everyone. And then he says this, Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if an enemy is hungry, feed him. If they are thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do you know what the Christian response to evil is? It's not more evil. The Christian response to evil is goodness. When somebody does you wrong, instead of heaping coals upon them, as Paul says, instead, heap them with kindness. That's not our natural response, is it? But that's God's response to us. That in our sinful state, that God demonstrated his mercy and kindness to us, that while we were still sinners, he died for us. And if we are to follow the example of Christ, if we are to follow what Christ did, then we are to do good to those who do evil against us. Now, some of us, that doesn't resonate well because we want to get back at them. We want them to feel the pain that we felt. But this is the question. Do you trust that God has your good at heart? Do you trust that God will enact his vengeance? I think we have to remember that God has his good will in mind. And maybe God is working in that person. Maybe the things that we, we, we don't see are the things that God is doing behind the scenes. And one day, one day, maybe God will bring redemption to that situation. See, because we as humans are finite and limited in our perspective, we will never see the big picture. Only God sees the big picture, and that's what we have to trust in God's judgment when somebody does us wrong. When I was a teenager, I was reading the Orange County Register many years ago, and I came upon an interesting story about a Christian woman. Her name was Madge Rhoda. Madge Rhoda was 70 years old, and she was brutally assaulted in a restaurant bathroom. Her throat was cut, leaving her drenched in blood. And the man who did this was a man named James Bridal. She tells a story as, as he was, she was being assaulted. She was praying to God. And Rhoda said she remembers that he turned to her stocking still pulled over his face before he fled. And she says, I believe in God. She said, 
But Satan has poisoned your mind. Well, when the court case came up in the courtroom, Rhoda survived. And she came to the courtroom to present to her assailant or her attacker a Bible and her forgiveness. Bridal was, uh, was sentenced uh, to a maximum of 23 years on attempted robbery, afflicting great harm. But Bridal asked to speak to, her, uh, to this woman. And she says, how is it that you can forgive me for what I did to you? Her answer said this, it isn't natural. Nor she would have forgiven her him alone. But she said what got her through was God's intervention. And with that, she was able to open the door of the gospel to this, to this man. I don't know if you were in that same situation, how your response would be. I know for many of us, our natural response is the response of, of human nature is we want to get back at those who hurt us. But the only way we can acknowledge and forgive is first and foremost, acknowledge and be forgiven by God. That's why the Christian message is so important. You know, we live in a world where we preach Christ, but we don't act like Christians. That we talk about what Christ can do for heaven, but we don't apply it in our daily lives. And one of the most important things I want to encourage all of you is this, that if you are not a forgiving person, you are not displaying the character and nature of God. But it's hard to forgive. It's almost impossible to forgive because that goes against our human nature. The only way we can forgive is to be forgiven by God. And that's what the message of the gospel is. So take a few moments. I want you to bow your heads in prayer. And I want you to think of somebody that has offended you. Somebody that is a coworker, Maybe somebody even at church. Or maybe somebody even like myself who may you have been misunderstood or said, okay, I did something. Whoever that person may be. And rather than think of all the evil things you could do to that person, first, offer a prayer of peace. A prayer of blessing for that person. And then secondly, acknowledge where you are in your own state. And then thirdly, let go. Release it back to God. Because ultimately, God is the one who's going to ignite. No matter what that person has done to you, God is the ultimate judge. We are the conduits of mercy. Father, I think of people in my own life that have hurt me or offended me, and it's easy for me to be angry, to be bitter, to be vengeful. But I recognize that that's not the life you gave you displayed for us, but one in which you have displayed forgiveness. Father, what a powerful word itself, forgive. Literally meaning to let go. You could have held all of us in contempt, but you have demonstrated mercy to us. And for that, we acknowledge our own sinfulness, our own depravity. As Paul says, I am the worst of sinners. Have mercy on me, O oh God. And so help us when somebody offends us not to look at that person's sin, but let that trigger our own sinfulness, our own attitudes, our own anger. 
Because if we can't deal with our own sinful nature, we will never have the grace and mercy to forgive those who have sinned against us. So, Father, we pray, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And we pray this in Jesus' name.